0: All right, 1 Corinthians chapter two. So if you weren't here last week or for a little bit of a catch-up, we are starting this book of Corinthians. It is what they call an occasional letter, meaning that Paul wrote it for a specific occasion. And here's what had happened. Paul had gone to the city of Corinth. It's kind of a crazy city. It's, um, It's a port town that would have had a ton of sailors and also has a temple that worships a goddess of pleasure. Okay, so you put those two together and you have crazy town, all right? And he starts a church here. And he's there for a year and a half. It's a very long time for Paul to be in a place working these things out with the Corinthians. And then he leaves them and years go by, I think it's about five years. And the leaders of the Corinth church, they're seeing some problems in church. A lot of the Corinthians who are at the church, they think church is great because church is growing and church is big. But the the leaders are seeing divisions and problems and doctrinal issues. So they travel to find Paul and they sit down with him and they're like, Paul, here's the issues we're seeing in church. And Paul writes this letter as a response to address the issues going on in the church in Corinth. We covered chapter one last week. Justin, that was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. And we're jumping into chapter two tonight. If I was to outline chapter two, I would really break it into three sections. Verses one through five, I would say this. They are telling us how to share the gospel. Verses six through 13, Paul's going to unpack something he calls the secret and hidden wisdom of God and then verses 14 through 16 they actually belong in chapter 3. So we'll see what we do with those when we get to them, all right? So let's dive in and before we do, let me ask you guys a couple questions. Just think to yourself, no raising your hands, but on a show, like on a scale of 1 to 10, how often do you share your faith? One being like, never, ever have I done it, and 10, like, I got a tattoo that says, Jesus saves across my forehead so that everyone would ask me about it, okay? How often do you share your faith? Same scale, one to 10, how comfortable are you sharing your faith? Like, wow, that makes me terribly uncomfortable. Two, I'll share my faith with anyone, anywhere, anytime. I'm oblivious to social awkwardness, doesn't matter. I'm going. Do you know how to share your faith? If you're like me, and I would guess most of us, on the scale of one to 10 in those three categories, we have a fairly low score. I don't think sharing our faith is something that we do often. And I think if we were honest with ourselves, we're not sure exactly how to do it, and we're kind of terrified of doing it. But we all know we should be doing it more, and we we actually would kind of like to, but, but where do you start? And I think Paul here is, he tells the Corinthians how it was that he approached and shared the gospel with them. We can learn a lot about how we are to share the gospel with others, okay? It's verses one through five, and as we go through it, I want you to look for three things. What is the approach that Paul takes to sharing the gospel? What is the attitude that Paul has about sharing the gospel? And what is Paul's aim in sharing the gospel, all right? And of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That is Paul's approach to sharing the gospel. It's his approach, it's his attitude, it's its aim, it's super interesting. And the first thing I see about Paul and his approach to the gospel is this, he always keeps the main thing, the main thing. Or to put it another way, he doesn't get stuck in the muck. Right? What does Paul do? He says, I decided I was going to stick to Jesus Christ and him crucified, because that's what matters when you share the gospel. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And what happens with us is we get in these conversations with people, and these conversations start to steer towards um, religious things, moral things, and people just want to discuss all sorts of these issues that are not Jesus. Christ and Him crucified. Well, what do you feel about L B G T Q plus issues? What do you feel about Jesus? Right, that's Paul's approach, and I think that that should be our approach as well. I mean, it doesn't have to be quite as harsh as that, but it'd be so interesting, and I think it's so important for us to meet questions like that with, well, there's a story about Jesus, and here's how He dealt with a weird issue in His time. And there was a woman, and she wasn't doing what she was supposed to be doing either. But He loved her, and He gave her grace, and He gave her acceptance, and He told her to change. Like, how do we steer those conversations towards that? That's what Paul continually does. He doesn't get stuck in the muck. And I think so often, my fear is sharing my faith with someone. Someone's gonna have a question for me that I can't answer. Oh, what about this? Or what? But, but I know Jesus. I know Jesus. And if I steer it back to him, I'm gonna be on much more solid footing. Make the main thing the main thing. Because here's what it says, Romans 10, 9 if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the message Paul stuck to, and it's the message we need to speak to as well. So the other thing that I think is interesting about Paul's approach is what he says down here. He says, in my speech, in verse four, were not implausible words of wisdom, he didn't come with fancy or lofty speech. And here's the thing you have to get about this. He wasn't saying that he was just trying to speak very plainly because there's been people who've interpreted this that way. The great preacher, Jonathan Edwards, used to type out all of his sermons and then read them in an extremely monotone voice so that no one would think that it was him and not the gospel that was going to save you. And then we would try to, that's not what he's saying here. It's not a bad thing. And Jonathan Edwards preached the gospel to many, many people, and they were saved, and that was his method. But what we have to know here about the church in Corinth is teaching and talking and proclaiming things on the sidewalk was super trendy. It was super popular. It was super relevant. That's what people did. There were these. Orders who would stand up on the sidewalk and they would proclaim things almost like street performers. They were our musicians, our rock stars, our celebrities of that day. And Paul says, I didn't try to be like them, I didn't try to be relevant. I think too often when we go to share our faith, we try to sound relevant, we try to be cool Christian. There's no room in sharing your faith to be cool Christian. Because it's just not honest. It's not authentic. And I think right now, the youth culture that's coming up is going to value authenticity above all else when it comes to us sharing our faith. I went to a church years ago. It was a brand new first day that the church opened. And it just, it just illustrated this to me so well. So we walk in and everything that they were, they, all the signups and everything were on iPads, which totally seems normal now, but iPads had like just come out. Like, they were the coolest thing. And you walk in, and like, there's 10 iPads, and people are walking around, signing you up, and I'm like, okay, that's interesting, right? And then I, I sat down in the service, and a couple of the songs were secular songs that they'd kind of twisted to sound a little bit Christian songs, and like, I'm never a big fan of that, so I'm, my hackles are like, way up now. And then the pastor starts the sermon with like a three-minute video clip from a show called Modern Family. Not a Jesus show, right? And I'm sitting there, and then they their announcements where they were going to have, like, men's group was going to be beer and football. And I'm like, what are we doing? Don't You're, you're trying to, so hard to be cool, church, that you just look like a cheap knockoff of the world. Don't be a cheap knockoff of the world. Be an imitator of Jesus Christ. Right? It's, it, it, it doesn't work. And Paul says, I didn't try to be like that. I didn't try to make myself cool Christian or trendy Christian or... I just tried to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified and I stuck with the facts. But this is the interesting thing to me is he also says this, but I also gave you a demonstration of power. And I think this is hugely important that when we share our faith, the best thing we can do is demonstrate God's power. Sweet, so we could do miracles. Is that what we're talking about? right? Because Paul did miracles, didn't he? Paul did a lot of miracles as he was traveling around. Is that what Paul's talking about? Because it might be. I mean, in Cyprus, he strikes a man with blindness. That demonstrates some power. That's cool. In Lystra, he heals a crippled man. Philippi, he casts out a demon. In Troad, he brought a man back to life. That'd do it. That'd do it. You should believe in Jesus. Why? Because that dead guy's going to walk again. Whoa! Right? In Ephesus, there were so many miracles that even the sweat rags that Paul used to mop off his forehead when he was working in his armpits and stuff, people would touch those and get healed, right? All of these are recorded. Paul spends a year and a half in Corinth and there's not a single recorded miracle in that time. I think that's so interesting. I bet my personal thought that Paul Through revelation of the Holy Spirit, knew this church in Corinth, they're going to be all about people and they're going to be all about spiritual things and and the power of the Spirit. And if I'm performing miracles here, it's not going to be about the gospel anymore. It's going to be about the miracles. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. I think what Paul's talking about is his testimony. Not the testimony that he gets struck down with blindness and then comes back to life, the testimony of this I was the worst sinner you can imagine. I joyed in killing Christians, murdering them brutally. That's what I liked doing. And God saved and changed me. That's the demonstration of power. I think that there's no greater witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ than a transformed life. That's what we stick to. I met Jesus and my life was transformed. Because people argue away miracles. They decide away miracles. People argue away spiritual gifts as this or sorcery or ma- but people cannot argue with a transformed, joy-filled life. They just want it. They just want it. And I think that that is our approach When you are trying to share your faith with someone, if you get lost, if it gets weird, if it gets in the woods, just come back to this. I don't know about all that, but I was a mess. And I thought no one could love me. And then I met Jesus. And I found out that he did love me and he did die for me and he wants me to change. And when I mess up, he still loves me again. That's all I know, but it's enough for me. You should meet him too. That's the demonstration of power that we fall back to when we're sharing our faith. It's so cool. And then it's not just the approach that he has, but also the attitude he has. The attitude that Paul has about sharing his faith is this. It's not about me. All right, if there, was a, if there was one phrase that would tie all this chapter together, it would be that. It's not about me. It's not about you. I'm gonna say that so many times tonight, you're gonna get sick and tired of hearing it. But that's what Paul knew. He says, I knew it wasn't, about me. Because verse three is so interesting. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And I read that and I'm like, that does not fit with my picture of Paul. Anybody else read that verse and think like that's not, I think about Paul like getting stoned and then going back into the same city to preach again. Right, I think about Paul talking about how I boldly proclaimed Christ. I think about Paul as in like in chains, in the bottom of the dungeon, in Philippi, singing. Like what is he talking about here? That he was in fear and weakness and in much trembling. And it's very likely that Paul was suffering quite physically while he was in Corinth. Paul didn't seem to be a healthy guy to begin with. People think that he probably had an issue with his eyes. There's a lot of scholars and commentators who think he had a stutter and couldn't talk very well. So he wasn't physically super healthy to begin with. And then everywhere Paul went, he got beat up. Like, this is what he writes in 2 Corinthians. He says this, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Okay, now we're like, okay, cool, 40. No, no, no. If you were in that time, you'd be like, what? Because 40 lashes was supposed to kill you. That's why they did 40 lashes less one. If they hit you 40 times, they figured, there's a pretty good chance you're gonna die. So they would do it 39 times because they didn't want anyone to accuse them of trying to kill you. That happened to him five times. When Paul took off his shirt to do some work on the tents, his back looked like nothing you've ever seen nothing but crisscrossed scars. I was stoned, beaten with rocks, broken bones. Probably didn't heal right, probably didn't set right. Three times I was shipwrecked. I don't even know what that does to you. And he spent an entire night and a day adrift at sea. Here's the thing that we have to remember. Like we picture Paul as this big, powerful orator and just preaching. Paul is a small crippled, beat up, infirmed man who might have a speech impediment? And he's like, doesn't matter. It's not about me. That's what Paul knows. It's not about my physical discomfort. I'm going to share the gospel anyways because it's too important. They will carry me up onto that stage if they have to, and I will share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not about our discomfort. It's not about awkwardness. That's what keeps me from doing it way too often. Like I, I do not, there is like almost nothing in life I detest more than social awkwardness, okay? So like you guys know the show The Office? Can't watch it. Physically cannot be in the room when there is that much social awkwardness going on. Like you ask my wife, I have to leave. I don't like it, but it's more Important, the gospel is more important than how much I don't like social awkwardness. The gospel is more important than how physically infirmed Paul was. It's more important. Paul also knew this it wasn't about him and his skills. Like we read what he wrote and he seems like so eloquent, but there's a lot of evidence to say he was not a great speaker. But he goes, you know what? It's not about me. It's not about the skills that I possess, it's about Jesus Christ and Him crucified and how that has transformed my life. And this is simultaneously a, a warning to those of us who like to be in front of people and who like to be the sin of attention and who like to talk. Like, I had to make a mor- It's not about me. It's not about me. Tonight's not about me. Tonight is about what this word wants to tell you. So it's a warning to me, honestly, but to those people who are like, I don't know if I even have the skills. It's an encouragement. It's an encouragement. It's not about you. It's about what Jesus has done, and it's too important not to share. So Paul spent his life sharing the gospel. And then finally, what is Paul's aim? I think this is so interesting. It's verse five, it says this. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. When we talk about sharing our faith or people coming to the faith, we talk about it like this. We always use the phrase like people need to have faith in Jesus. It's a very common thing we say in church. And the image that comes up in our head, I think, is wrong. It's like if a person who has no faith in anything, and suddenly they got to conjure up some faith. We've got to help them conjure up this faith in their life and put it in Jesus. And that's not at all the truth. And it's, it's, Paul realized that. He goes, it's not that people don't have faith. People have faith in the wrong things. They have mis- Directed faith. In Corinth, they had faith in wisdom. They were all about wisdom. How wise can I be? How smart can I be? That's what's going to save me. Our culture does the same thing. We put our faith in finances, faith in teachers and lecturers, faith in science, faith in the government, and man, yeah. <laughs> probably not. No one's struggling with that one. But we do. We put our faith in the wrong. Things. And I think it's so interesting when we're sharing with people to be like, listen, I'm not asking, you are a person of faith, but your faith is misplaced. How is that working out for you? That thing you're relying on, that thing you've put your hope in, how is it working out for you? Because here's how Jesus is working out for me. That's the redirection that Paul is always focused back on. All right, so he goes from there and he dives into this thing he calls the secret and hidden wisdom of God. And this passage seems rather secret and hidden, the first 25 times I read it. So let's see if we can (laughs) sort through this thing. Here it goes. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Anybody else find that passage confusing? Right? It's, it, the, it seems to me like this, all right? So lately, I've been reading my, um, my two older kids the first couple Harry Potter, Harry Potter books, okay? Don't judge me, if you have issues with that, it's uh, Justin Cabot at ecf. <laughs> okay, so they're super into them and they're super like, they wanna know about the mysteries, but they'll always ask me, they keep asking me for these things that would be total spoiler alerts. Like, oh, what does Harry do here? Or how does Harry get out of the situation? So here's what I started doing. When they'll ask me for a spoiler alert, like, What's Harry gonna do with it? I went, come here, come here, I'll tell you. Come here, come here. Is your sister watching? No, okay, come here. I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) It took about four or five times, but they've stopped asking. I kind of feel like that's what Paul's doing here. He's like, hey, that that thing that you desire, that mature wisdom, it's hidden and it's secret, but it's actually not at all what he's saying because here's what that wisdom is. Come here, I'll tell you, you Ready? Here's what it is. It's Jesus Christ. The hidden and secret wisdom is Jesus Christ. He said it in the last chapter. Verse 24 of the last chapter says this But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Here's the thing that makes this so mysterious Jesus is both the simple gospel. Right? That's what he said. I keep, I'm keeping it simple. Jesus Christ and him crucified. But Jesus is also the hidden wisdom of God. Jesus is the deep end. He's the deep end. How can he be both? How does that work? Because here's the thing. Here's, here's, how, here's the deal. The death burial, and it's so important for us to get this, the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ Paul here calls it the Lord of Glory, such a cool title, is both our doorway to salvation and the pathway to our sanctification. On the cross, he defeated death. He, both, he did two things. He defeated death, but he also inaugurated the kingdom, this new thing that's gonna happen where we get to partner with God and we get to walk forward and we get to be conformed to his likeness. He did them both at the same time. See, and it's the acceptance of that that makes us citizens of the kingdom. Lord, I accept what you did for me. That makes me a blood-bought son and daughter, a King Jesus. But it's knowing him, and it's following him, and it's serving him. That's how we press deeper and deeper and deeper into the Christian life. He is both the stairways into the pool and the deep end, both the gateway and the pathway And it's so huge. Paul actually explains this finally to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says this, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That as we walk with the Lord, as we focus on him, as we fix our gaze on him, he is transforming us slowly from glory to greater glory but the church of Corinth wasn't ready for that. They weren't ready for that. They weren't ready for the pathway to glory. You know why? Because they were still arguing about how you get through the doorway. That's their issue. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, you're not ready for the deeper things as we follow Christ, as we try to be conformed by Christ, because you still think you got through the doorway because you follow Paul, or you follow Apollos, or you follow Cephas. It's chapter one. You still think you got in because of your wisdom or because of your family name or because of your prominent position, chapter one. Here's the thing, Paul says, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about who your pastor is or what denomination of church you go to or your past. Whether you think your past makes you super qualified or super disqualified, it's not about you. It's not about your righteousness or your lack thereof it's about Jesus, it's all about Jesus, it's always been about Jesus. And until Corinth gets that, until we get that, we're not going to mature as Christians. We're not, because we're going to think it's all about us. The Corinthians were not truly ready to follow Jesus because they really hadn't figured out who Jesus really was. They didn't really know who he was, that it doesn't matter where you come from or your background. It's Jesus who saves and transforms. They hadn't got that. You ever been lost um, in the fog at sea? No, it is a weird experience. So my dad and I for years have gone up to Canada and gone fishing uh, out in the ocean in our little lake boat. Uh, We're on the inside of Vancouver Island. So it is pretty flat and calm like a lake and the wind can come up it can get sketchy, but it's pretty flat. It's pretty calm like a lake. It's not too scary. And we don't go that far out. We're like 200 yards from shore, maybe, and maybe half a mile from where we started. So we're out there fishing one day and this fog rolls in. And I mean, it was so thick, I almost couldn't see from the back of the 15 foot boat to the front of the 15 foot boat right? But I was convinced that I knew where we were headed. So I'm like, let's go in. We can't see. So I start motoring off. And we go, it should have taken us five minutes. 10 minutes later, it's still everywhere is white, right? So then dad's like, oh, I know where we're going. So dad's 10 minutes, still everywhere it's white. And we're like, wait a minute, stop. Because for all we know, we're headed out to the big white ocean. Stop. We don't know where we're going. We're never going to get there. Now we have a GPS. Now, when the fog rolls in, I just pull up the GPS and I follow my track back. Beep, 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 because I know exactly where I'm supposed to be headed. That's what Paul is saying here. Corinth, you're missing it. You don't really know who Jesus is, and until you do, you're never gonna press into him and follow him into the deep things of spiritual life. And here's the thing, it's pretty easy to just write off the Corinthians misunderstanding Because I'm like, okay, you're sailors, and you're this mixed church, and you've got this thousand-woman brothel in your town. Like, you guys probably aren't going to get it, right? I get it. You might misunderstand. You know, the church in Las Vegas might have issues. That's, you know, that's all he's saying here. But there's this other group of people. There's this group of people who dedicated their lives to studying the Word. They dedicated their lives to reading the Old Testament They knew all the prophecies about coming Messiah. They knew everything they were supposed to know and they missed it too. That's what Paul says right here, verse eight. None of the rulers of this age understood it. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the people who were supposed to be ultimately religious, they missed it too. Why? Why did the Pharisees and Sadducees miss who Jesus really was? because Jesus didn't look like what they thought Jesus should look like. That's what happened. They wanted a king. And in their mind, a king looked and acted a certain way. He wasn't from Podoc Nazareth. A king wasn't poor. A king certainly didn't ride a donkey. I know what a king's supposed to look like. That can't be a king. They wanted a savior, but they wanted someone to save them from Rome, not to save them from their sins. You're not gonna fight Rome? I know what a savior is supposed to look like. You're not the savior. They wanted a religious leader, one who would come down and pat them on the back and tell them how awesome they were doing. Not someone who kept telling them that they were whitewashed tombs and hypocrites and kept breaking the Sabbath. That's not what a religious leader is supposed to look like. They missed Jesus because he wasn't what they wanted him to be. He was hidden from them, but they hid him from themselves. That's what it means, hidden here. It doesn't mean that God is hiding this wisdom from you. We've hidden it from ourselves. One of my favorite sayings, a customer told me this one year, he goes, you know what the greatest thing? He was an older guy. You know what the greatest thing about getting old is? What? He goes, hiding your own Easter eggs. (laughs) That's the Pharisees and Sadducees. They hid Jesus from themselves. And I wonder how often we do this. I think we do it all the time. I think I do it all the time. I don't think I miss the fact that Jesus is a Messiah, but I think I miss who Jesus really is. And instead, I see him as who I want him to be. But that's missing him all the same, isn't it? Right? We want a Jesus who's all-inclusive and all about love. So that's the Jesus we picture and worship. And we forget what Jesus said, that he was the only way. And no one gets the Father except for Him. And we miss Jesus. We want a Jesus who's all about forgiveness and second chances and the 70 times seven. And He is. But we miss the Jesus who's all about holiness, who talks about cutting down fruitless trees and says things like, Depart from me, I never knew you. And we miss Jesus. We want a Jesus who picked us because we're awesome, not a Jesus who says, I picked you because. If you did something awesome, people would know it was me. And that's what Jesus says, right? We want to be Jesus who's our personal cheerleader, not Lord of all creation, Lord of all creation who we have pledged to serve. Ultimately, many of us want a Jesus who serves us, not a Jesus who tells us to serve others. And so like the Pharisees, we completely miss who Jesus is. And it makes it really, really hard for us to be like him. It's not that we're not Christians. It's that we're not going to mature like the church in Corinth. All right? So what do we do? What do we do about this? Paul goes on here and he explains something that's so beautiful and I think it's so important for us to understand. He says this. He basically, in the next section, he says, you can't fully understand Jesus without God's help. You're not gonna get it without God's help. See, that's why he quotes this passage from Isaiah. Here's what he says. It's verse nine. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. He's not just quoting this passage about heaven. I think he's also talking about the other thing that the cross accomplished, that on the cross, Jesus paved a way for us to be reunited with God in a way that we hadn't been since the Garden of Eden, that God would be with us continually. It's what he talks about. Jesus talks about this in John 14. Here's what he says. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. That's the thing the heart of man can't imagine, that it would be the dwelling place of God. That's unimaginable. That's what we can't imagine here, that God's spirit would come down and partner with us and show us how to follow Jesus and how to be like Jesus that God's spirit in us would be our source of wisdom, which is wisdom is, is put out here about 17 times in the first two chapters. Paul's saying, you're missing it, guys. It's not about worldly wisdom. It's about the wisdom that comes from God's spirit that tells you about Jesus and how to be like him. That's the deep things of the Christian faith. So what does a life filled filled with the Spirit of God look like? Particularly when it comes to the area of wisdom. Because here's where the Corinth church had everything backwards, again, right? The Corinthian church thought this. They thought the Spirit of God is all about power and works and signs and gifts. The Spirit's about power and wisdom comes from the world. That's what the Corinthians thought. And the Spirit is about power and gifts. And some Christians put a really, really high emphasis on the gifts of the Spirit and the workings of the Spirit. And some Christians put a really, really low emphasis on the workings of the Spirit. But both of them, in both camps, oftentimes miss it and think that's the Spirit's main thing. It's not. The Holy Spirit's main thing is not signs and wonders. It is helping us follow Christ. It's so interesting, when I quoted that that passage that Jesus talks about the spirit, I left out the first half of the first verse because everybody does. But here's the first half of the first verse. It says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate who will help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him. What does Jesus say here that the Spirit is being sent to us for? To know truth and to keep the commandments. To understand what God wants me to do and to help me do it. That's the partnership we get with the Spirit as we dive into the deep things of the Christian faith. So here's how Paul goes on to describe that. It's verses 10 through 13. He says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. How do you know what God wants for you? Well, the Spirit knows God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God." And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Do you wanna know how to obey God? Do you wanna know how to follow God and be like Jesus? It comes from the Spirit. It comes from listening and partnering with God's Spirit. I was reading this really interesting article about this and about what, a spiritual, what spiritual wisdom actually looks like. And I don't think the article was, is all-encompassing. The, the writer thought it was all-encompassing. I do not. But it, it was really interesting for me, and it put into words things that I had experienced and thought about but was never able to articulate. So here's what it said. It said this. It said that wisdom from God's Spirit comes in three forms. It comes in the form of revelation, inspiration, and illumination. Revelation is just purely spiritual. It's where God's Spirit gives you revelation. It doesn't come from anywhere else. You're thinking about something. You're going about your day. You're meditating, and a thought or something comes into your mind, and you're like, I do not know where that came from. It can be God's Spirit giving revelation. But his spirit also comes in inspiration. Inspiration is collaborative. It's when we are getting together with God's people and we're speaking through and we're talking through an issue, we're working through, we're praying through something, and maybe God imparts something in me to speak into your life, a word of prophecy that's inspiration as we work collaboratively with each other. And then finally, God's spirit works to give us wisdom through illumination. This is where God's spirit partners with the word, that as you pray through your word, as you're reading and studying, God will bring things to light or challenge you with things, that it's revelation, inspiration, and illumination. So let me give you an example in my life of the most rare one, I think, which is revelation. I've shared this story before. I don't have a lot of stories about God having revealed something to me, but this one was striking in my life. So I just moved back to Portland working in a grocery store and I had decided that I wanted to get a job as a waiter. Never been a waiter before, never worked in a restaurant before. I found this really fancy new restaurant that was opening and I went in and I'm like, I wanna be a waiter. And he's like, well, your resume, you've never worked in a grocery, you can can be a busboy. I go, nope, I wanna be a waiter. And I proceeded to tell him why I would be God's gift to food service, the best waiter humankind had ever known, right? And I can talk. So I was fairly convincing. And then I gave him a list of references that I thought would confirm my grand delusions, okay? So I leave there, feeling really good about it. Get in my car, and this heaviness comes on my spirit. Just like, oh, that's not the right path for you. And I'm I'm kind of mad, honestly. Right? Because true revelation of the spirit, sometimes you agree with, but sometimes you're like, mmm. No, I don't want to. So I just wrestled with it. I'm just wrestling with it, wrestling with it. I don't think I should take this. I don't think I should take this. So I call up some people that I know, talking with them through this, this how the, this spirit's weighing on me and, and talking to my mom. And she's like, no, I think, I think you're, I think that's God's spirit. She goes, I, 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 I don't know. I think that's God's spirit. I really think like he's talking to you. I'm like, oh, that's inspiration too. We got two. Let me go to the word. Maybe the word will tell me I can be a waiter. So I start reading through the Bible and I just came across some verses that were just like, you can't, this is not for you. This and it, it's not a verse I would have ever read in that context, but as I'm praying through it and reading through it, I'm just like, God, you're talking to me right now. So two days later, the, uh, the manager of the restaurant calls up and he's like, all right, I've never done it before. I can't believe I'm doing it, um, but I will give you a job as a waiter. I'm like, I can't take the job. There's a long pause, and he goes, Really? Like, you, I don't think I've ever seen anybody want this job so much. Can you tell me why? God told me not to. <laughs> really long pause on the other end. Okay, bye. <laughs> See, there's this interesting verse we're actually not even going to cover tonight, but it says this. It says, the spiritual man, it can't be judged by other people. He's never going to understand that unless he has a walk of faith. Never going to understand it. But I understand it. So I went back to my job at the grocery store. And within a week, my now wife came through my grocery store line. Oh, I get it. That's way better than a job as a waiter. Plus, I know my personality now, I would be a horrible waiter. So I, I cannot remember people's faces or names or things that they say. So, bad waiter. Just it would not have worked out very well. Was there is here's the thing about partnering with God's Spirit in this walk of wisdom. It is a bit mysterious. There's nothing I can do to repeat that. It's not repeatable, there's no formula happens to some people more than others. I think illumination is the most common one for us, but it's available. The partnership and wisdom that will only come to us about spiritual things from the Spirit of God is available to us. So why don't we tap into that resource more? And I think there's a few reasons that I personally have not tapped into that resource when I could have. One is I'm relying on the wisdom of the world instead of the wisdom of the spirit. Where am I gonna get my wisdom? I've got this issue, I'm, I'm thinking about it, and so I go and I look up Dr. Phil. That's the wisdom of the world, right? I'm praying through finances, I'm trying to figure out what's finances and what I should do with my finances, so I, I talk to my accountant. That's wisdom of the world, right? I'm having an issue with my marriage, so I go to my buddy who's you know, on his third, Clearly, he knows more than me, right? Beer and marriage at the time. So that's worldly wisdom. And it's not just that we simply rely on worldly wisdom. But here's the thing. We typically only accept the wisdom of the Spirit when it agrees with the wisdom of the world. Like when we read something in the Bible that just seems so counterintuitive, give 10% of your money away. Call up the accountant. Is this a good plan? Not unless you need the tax write-off. Okay, I don't think we'll be doing that. No, that's exactly opposite. See, the wisdom of the world is fine. We should talk to accountants and lawyers and counselors. I think Dr. Phil probably has some decent things to say. But only when he agrees with, when they agree with, when we filter it through the wisdom of the Spirit and the wisdom of God's Word. That's reason number one. We're relying on the wisdom of the world instead of the wisdom of the spirit. Number two is we're just not asking. I'm just not asking. Just, I don't spend time and go, Lord, give me wisdom in this situation, in this circumstance. I need your wisdom, give it to me. Or maybe we are asking and we're not giving space or opportunity. I have never had revelation or illumination when I was distracted and surfing through apps on my phone. I'm just gonna say it, it's never happened. Revelation comes in moments of quiet. And illumination to me, whenever I have had something illuminated to me in God's word, it's almost never been when I'm reading. It's when I read, and later I'm meditating, I'm thinking over what I'm reading, I'm mulling over what I'm reading, just pondering what I was reading today, and then God's Spirit will speak something to me. Oh, well I've never thought about it that way. I, I don't even think I would think about it that way. That must be the Spirit giving me illumination, but it almost always, at least for me, requires silence. I think most of us distract away the opportunities the Spirit would like to have to give us illumination. We read our Bible, maybe, maybe not, but then we spend the rest of our days distracted, listening to this, looking at this, and we never sit in a place of silence to actually allow God to speak to us. It's a still, small voice. He's probably not gonna be louder than Netflix, but he'll speak to you, and he'll give us illumination. And then finally, we're just not relying on any wisdom at all. We don't have this desire to press deeper into the things of God. The desire is to get home and get on the couch and ah, I made it through another day, click. That's the desire. And we're not desiring wisdom, but it is there for those of us who desire it. And I do believe that God wants to show it to us. It's not secret, it's not hidden unless we hide it from ourselves, but it is mysterious. It is this mystery that God not only saved me, but He's laying out this pathway where I can be like Him. And when I struggle with that, He sent me this Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Creator of the universe, who will partner with me and walk with me and give me revelation and give me inspiration and give me illumination. That's mysterious to me. I'm never going to fully wrap my head around it. But it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And I think what Paul would say to the church in Corinth is, I really want you guys to get to a place where you tap into it. I really want that maturing for you, but you've got to fix your eyes on Jesus because it's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about us. And then he goes into verses 14 through 16. Like we said, they're supposed to be in chapter three, so we'll leave them for chapter three. All right? They're going to get picked up next week. Let's pray that God's spirit would lead us in wisdom this week, amen? Father, you desire such great things for us. And so often the thing that blocks the great things you have for me is me. With my false pictures of who you really are, or my distracting away the time that you would want to give me revelation, or my just not desiring to push deeper into the things of you. I pray that you would press that desire on each and every single one of us, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would give us wisdom, wisdom to be good husbands, to be good wives, wisdom to be good parents, wisdom to know how and when to share our faith, to tell people about how you've transformed us. We thank you that you have not left us alone, but you've given us a partner, that the spirit who dwells in us will help us to obey you and to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen, amen.